Hello, this is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University, and this is Shrink Speak. Today, we're continuing our series in Voices in Mental Illness uh, with the noted author, who is a writer of fiction, but also nonfiction, and particularly in the form of a memoir of her family and a brother that was afflicted with schizophrenia. She wrote a book that was titled Circles Around the Sun in Search of a Lost Brother, and it's a fascinating depiction of her family, which had, in addition to her brother that developed schizophrenia, uh, six other siblings, and how each of them were affected by this and how her brother sort of dealt with his illness over the course of his life, its impact on the family, and also, sadly, how it reflects the limitations of our country's mental health system and the availability uh, of treatment and the level of understanding by the public at large, the medical profession specifically, and this kind of impact that this inequity in terms of awareness and uh, availability of treatment has on people and by extension their families. So it's a pleasure to have the author who is Miss Molly McCluskey. Molly, good to have you here. Thank you for having me. So you uh, have become an acclaimed writer. Your beat is mainly uh, fiction, and you're going along fine, or at least as fine as a tormented writer can, because isn't that what the romantic image of writers is? And then you think about doing something which is a bit of a departure. Uh, can you tell us sort of how you came to be motivated to write this memoir about your family and your brother? Yeah, well, in a nutshell, um, my brother became ill when he was in college, and he was, because he was so much older than I am, he's 14 years older than I am, um, by the time I got to know him, or, or at least began to have my own memories of him, he was already, uh, had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And so for me, as the last born of my parents' six children, I, I had the least idea of who he had been before he became ill, which was radically different than, than who he was after he became ill. Um, he was incredibly promising and, and uh, talented and articulate and um, accomplished. And, um, you know, when I became, when I, when I began to know him, he was, you know, delusional and having hallucinations and um, very withdrawn and depressed. And so, um, so he was a kind of mystery to me uh, within my family and a kind of absent presence, and because I couldn't quite square the two, the two halves of his life as, as belonging to the same person. And so I think for me, the book was an attempt to answer a lot of unanswered questions and about what had happened to him, when it had happened, whether, you know, was there a point of no return for him? Because I did remember also, even after his diagnosis, periods of lucidity and, and when it seemed he was going to come out the other side of this. And I was very young still. I was only a teenager then, so I didn't know what any of it meant. But, um, but I was curious, you know, was there a point at which it became clear he was never going to get well? And um, so I had a lot of questions. Um, that I had never been able to answer. And then um, I came into possession of huge amount of family letters that um, didn't necessarily answer these questions, but gave me a lot of um, hints as to where I could look, who I could talk to, um, 
you know, the tracing the understanding of my own mother, the growing understanding of my own mother over the course of a few years um, from the time of his diagnosis. Um, so I had actually at the time that I was given these letters, I had planned a whole novel about something entirely different. And as soon as I read these letters, I realized that, you know, this was a way into Mike's story and that this was the story that I had been wanting, you know, all my adult life to write and um, never thought that I would be able to because just there seemed too many doors that were closed and and things that were forgotten. And, you know, suddenly I had this amazing archive to draw on and so immediately shelved the project I was about to embark on and wrote, wrote the book. So that took place uh, approximately when in time? How many years ago? Well, the, the letters I got in 2005, the book came out in 2011, so it was a slow okay. process. So, so 2005, at that time, how many, how many novels had you written? I had written um, three books of fiction, mm-hmm. two collections of, uh, collection of short stories, a novella, and a novel, mm-hmm. and then so, another novel after that book. So it's fair to say that um, you know, writing about particular illness or being a memoirist of anyone in your family or otherwise was not something that was your stock and trade. You were, you were writing fiction, commentary, and so forth, but this was kind of percolating in the back of your mind, and coming across this source of information through the letters somehow crystallized and uh, the, the idea and, and, and increased your motivation, and you then kind of preempted what might have been your plan for what your next project would be by pursuing this. And in doing so, did you do, was it that this was an interesting story that deserved telling, or was it a way to kind of a, a catharsis or to expiate some aspects of, of yourself or your family? Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it, it wasn't therapeutic in that sense. Um, I remember somebody at a reading asking me, was this therapy for you? And I said, no, but I had to go to therapy when I was writing it because there was so much grief coming up about, about Mike. Um, so it was a working through of things. And as I said, I answered a lot of questions I never thought I'd be able to answer. Um, a lot of practical questions, just who, what, where, when, if not why. But it was, I mean, I think if you're a writer and, and, you know, having written three books before that, I mean, I approached it as a writer as well as as a sister and a human being. So I wanted to write a, a literary memoir and, and that really concerned itself with language and how things were expressed. And um, How did your family members feel about it? Uh, about the project? Yeah. They were all very, I talked to, I talked to them before I even started, as soon as I got the idea. And my parents were obviously, you know, the ones I was very concerned about and they were very supportive and, um, felt that it would be somehow restoring the whole truth about Mike. Um, your father too? Yeah. You know, he has a, he had, he had, he died last summer, but he, he had a much less comfortable relationship with what had happened to Mike and believed that it was all to do with drugs he had taken in the early seventies. And I think there are obvious, there's an obvious attraction to that simple cause and effect theory. Um, But they were, but even my father, who was much less comfortable talking about him, was very supportive and very open to the project and, you know, clearly felt a great sense of loss too, even though he didn't, he wasn't as hands-on as my mother. Right. Well, we'll come back to that because in in the course of this uh, discussion, 
uh, you know, apart from you know, having you tell your story of what the experience was like and how it's depicted in the book, and we also want to uh, use it as an opportunity to make some educational points for, for listeners, uh, and in this case specifically, you know, what caused the illness, you know, what, what, what set it off when he finally did get sick. Uh, but before that, you came at this in a way that was uh, made it, I don't know if it's more challenging than it otherwise might have been, but posed significant challenges because you were already separated by 14 years in age. So having had younger sisters myself, I know that, uh, you know, I barely pay attention to them. And, uh, you know, they they have limited access and involvement uh, unless, you know, you have a benevolent and... Uh, and uh, uh, kind uh, you know, brother as an older sibling, but you know you didn't know him that well or nearly as well as your other siblings would have. And then he got sick. And what we know about schizophrenia is that in the course of the illness uh, impacting a person, it really changes them uh, from whoever they may have been. They may have been beforehand. So you, you, you didn't. You really didn't know in what way he had changed in a really detailed way, other than what you could glean through whatever research that you did. But was that the case? Yeah. I mean, what what I understood and what I understand from who he was before I, I remembered him was entirely gleaned from other people's memories. Um, and I, you know, people who had known him in grade school, high school, family, friends, and letters that he himself had written before he became ill um, to his then-girlfriend, who still had the letters and shared them with me, letters to my mother, letters to my grandmother, all of these. I mean, so I did actually have some record of his own kind of mode of expression uh, when he was in high school and college, too, and even a couple of letters that mention the beginning of his trouble. And was the, the contrast in terms of coherence, intellectual content, uh, just you know, very stark and apparent? Yeah, it was completely... I mean, the letters from after his illness manifested, some of them are you know, completely incoherent. And, and, um, but others are not. They're a mix of incoherence and coherence. And, um, you know, what seems genuine emotional expressions, expressions of affection things like that mixed with a slightly off-kilter mode of, of expressing himself, and then there are the others that are completely incoherent. But the letters from when he was younger are like letters any, any, anyone would write, um, full of plans and dreams and what he imagines he'll do after college and what kind of grad school he'll go to and you know all sorts of things like that. Uh, I mean, that's one of the tragic features of schizophrenia is that uh, it affects uh, people across all socioeconomic classes, eth- ethnic and racial groups, and it does so when they're coming into the prime of their life in late adolescence or, or early adulthood. Molly, uh, you know, came, comes from a very accomplished family. Her father was a professional athlete and, and basketball coach. Members of her family have achieved uh, success professionally. There's one quote in the book that I, I really like. Um, so every, everybody goes through, particularly in the 60s, is one. A lot of number you and a number of your siblings grew up goes through challenges in terms of the cultural upheaval that was going on then, and there was a lot of alcohol use, there was a lot of recreational drug use, and and your brother Steve, uh, you know, was particularly uh, out there, living the life. And then there's a line where you, your mother says, you know, I'm really proud because he became a lawyer, he was very successful, he was uh, kind of civic and minded and charitable, he donated blood. Your mother said that I'm, you know, I'm really proud of you. 
However, the tragedy of schizophrenia is, is that you know, the wherewithal that one might have to turn their life around is, is really robbed from them, and, and Mike couldn't do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about another sibling who uh, was living with us at the time. Mike was Mike was living with us and hit bottom, uh, you know, alcoholically, and and as you said, turned his life around with my mother's support. And you know, it's a, you're right. It's a very stark contrast, you know, to what I mean. Mike was not able to do that, you know. So, first point that I would make as a take home message is is that uh, uh, Mike was really a smart student, did very well, he was popular, he had many friends, he was athletic, uh, played on the sports teams, had girlfriends, uh, was attractive. So it's not the ne'er-do-wells or the kind of misfits or, or, or geeks that get schizophrenia, it can happen to anyone. And that's in uh, part sort of the tragedy of it. Uh, in Mike's case, uh, you mentioned that your father was really uh, angry and attributed uh, much of it to the fact that he you know, utilized uh, recreational drugs, as so many uh, people of that day, uh, that age did at that time. I can tell you what the scientific understanding is of the role of recreational drugs to uh, precipitating a mental illness like schizophrenia, but. What was your understanding in terms of what you came to learn and what you communicated in the book? Well, you know, I definitely tried to to poke around and ask about that theory and whether there was substance to it. And the best that I came up with, and you, I'm sure, know far more about this than I do, um, is that if there is some kind of a predisposition, it's not going to help. But... It's also not not to say that taking lots of drugs, and I, you know, I, I talked to many friends of Mike's who were taking lots of drugs with him, and we're all leading perfectly normal lives now. So, you know, that that was that was what I, you know, it's not going to cause it, but if if there's something there, it's not going to help. I don't know if you would what you would say about that, whether you feel yeah, that. I, I completely agree. Yeah. You have a predisposition. I mean, schizophrenia. A major part of the the cause of schizophrenia is genetic, meaning you have genes that. Uh, confer a certain vulnerability to develop the illness. And if it's a high degree of genetic loading, it could happen spontaneously uh, in the same way as if you had Huntington's disease or, or Fragile X or something that was a, a autosomal dominant genetic disorder. But with complex genetic medical disorders that require multiple genes which additively confer risk, you have a, a probability. And then the environment comes in which can induce the phenotype. And drugs are one factor in the environment that can do it. So if you have a predisposition, you tend to use drugs to uh, a sufficient amount that it really probes that vulnerability, then the illness comes out. It's like if you have a predisposition to diabetes and you don't exercise, you like to eat, you're overweight, as opposed to you know, you're a triathlete, in which case it never might get it. But drugs by themselves don't cause the illness. And it's not all drugs that precipitate or add to the precipitating. It's really the hallucinogens, the stimulants, and cannabis. And, and that's why the, the liberalization of use of cannabis now, particularly in more potent forms, is so worrisome because we're, we're running a great social experiment because we don't know who of the general population of youth who are going to 
you know, use it recreationally uh, have this selective vulnerability. Are any other members of your family affected by mental illness? Not of this kind. I mean, being a good Irish Catholic family, we have uh, a lot of, uh, have had a lot of heavy drinking in the family. Everybody has come out the other side of that, but nothing like this. And I think that was one of the things that was so puzzling for my parents when they were first confronted with Mike reporting that he was depressed or that he felt unwell when he was in college in a sort of vague way that he couldn't quite articulate, was that they had no experience. There was no schizophrenia, as far as I know, or as far as my mother and father know, on on either side of their immediate family. And both of them were only children, so they there were no siblings, but their extended families, no. And so I'm sure that schizophrenia was the last thing on their minds. And my mother even said, you know, he would phone home from Duke saying he felt depressed, and they would sort of think, what on earth have you got to be depressed about? You know, you're a young man with the world all before you at this at a great school. He got a scholarship having to do, a, didn't he? Yeah, he got an academic scholarship. And he even made the freshman basketball he team. He played on the freshman team for a year, yeah. So, um, so they thought he was being spoiled, you know, initially, when he was, you know, the way that kids complain about, you know, everything, right? And... And then when he, because it was happening at a time when so many people of his age were sort of checking out and rejecting social conventions and rejecting the idea of a steady job and all of, all of those things that would have been a part of my parents' generation, they, I think, also assumed then that it was part of that, you know, rejection that he, and, and I, I, think, I think the idea of mental illness took a while to sink in until he was actually diagnosed why did he come, excuse the uh, harshness of this characterization, why did he come to no good end? You mean why did the illness become chronic? Or Yeah, and why did he wander around uh, and uh, get into various situations and uh, there was not any ability to stabilize him and yeah. to maximally control his illness? Yeah, I think part of that was just his personality. I mean, he loved being out hitchhiking, camping, um, being on the open road. And so when he became ill, he didn't want to be in a mental hospital for obvious reasons. And I know... you, You don't have to... I mean, you can be treated... And you don't have to stay in the mental hospital. Right, for the- right. And he wasn't in for long periods of time. He mm-hmm. was sort of in and out. And he would go in when my mother, something would happen, and my mother would feel, I can't handle him at home. He's, you know, I don't know what he's going to do next. And so um, he would, or he acted out in some way or in public or something. You know, various things happened that he would end up back in the hospital. But I know that on one occasion, you know, he left there. He escaped, you know, he escaped from the hospital. And the next we heard from him, he was 3,000 miles away. Did he think he was sick? Um, I think there were times that he did. I mean, in one letter he talks about, you know, I know I left. I just couldn't be in the hospital anymore, but I'm taking my medication and I'm doing all the right things. And I found myself a job as, you know, working as a gardener. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to get control of my life and I don't want you to worry about me. And, you know... The next two letters, the next one is a little less um, on firm ground, and then the next one is he's clearly stopped taking his medication and has ended up back in the hospital again. Somebody from work has taken him. And uh, so I think 
You know, and, and I something I read the other day, which you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, if you go off your medication, it takes some time for, I mean, the, the medication is still in your system. So you don't immediately realize, it's not like taking a drink and you get drunk, you know, you don't immediately realize the effect of going off the medication. And by the time that becomes apparent, you've now been off it for, you know, two, three, four weeks, whatever it is, and it's too late because you're you're already kind of cycling into psychosis. And so I think it was probably easy for him to believe initially if he went off the medication, which he didn't like the side effects and whatever, that he was fine without it. Right. And well, th- that that is the classic pattern that occurs, sadly, with people who have schizophrenia. It's hard for them to have insight into their illness. And uh, uh, even if they accept medication, whether they believe in it's, you know, that it's necessary or not, you know, they don't understand the role it plays in terms of stabilizing their illness, alleviating their symptoms, enabling them to maintain a remission. And they think, oh, I can, I'm, I'm fine now, I don't need this. Or if there are side effects, I don't want these. And they go off and because it often takes weeks, months, or even a couple of years before a recurrence happens, you know, they don't attach it to the so my point, I was when I said to you, came to no good end, it was sort of a leading question. So w- what exists are in a range of different types of services that try to address what's called disease management. And in the case of schizophrenia, you really need somebody like a case manager or a life coach who is essentially an auxiliary ego for you to uh, help to correct the limitations in your understanding, your judgment, you know, your sphere of information. And the data are out there to show how this works. Very practical. I mean, it's not like rocket science. It's, you know, you have somebody who's making sure that you get your prescription filled, who makes sure that you're getting your insurance, uh, pre- your insurance policy paid up to date, you know, you get a place to live, that it keeps you on track. And without that, and without a family member who kind of subordinates their life to be that person for their ill relative, people wander around and fend for themselves. And and the result is generally uh, not good, or it certainly isn't as good as it could have been. Yeah. And I think the, the peripatetic nature of Mike's life during those few years, um, because he kept taking off, I mean, it, it made that sort of support. I mean, it was, it would have been impossible because he, you know, he kept leaving and going thousands of miles away. And so that stability that he really needed at that time, he well, just couldn't avail of it. I, I'm going to try and uh, conclude the the, uh, the discussion with what's kind of a, a, an essential but controversial issue in relation to managing people with schizophrenia. So in terms of you know, what ultimately happened in the course of his illness, you know, it's clear to me, and I, I think, you know, you agree with this, that had there been more or better treatment, things could have been different and better. Okay, so the question is then, what would have been the optimal thing? Well, the optimal thing would have been to provide state-of-the-art intervention at the beginning of the illness when he first started getting sick. Um, and he was how old then? His first self-reporting of feeling unwell was he was a junior in college so whatever that is 2021 and then was was that um consistent with you know your parents observations of his behavior did they see something going wrong 
They didn't really, but he wrote them a letter about it, and somebody that I spoke to, a couple of people who I spoke to from Duke who had known him, said that he expressed to them that he was feeling confused and a mess, as he called it. Mm-hmm. So, well, well, As you said, though, in those days, yeah. uh, that was circa 1970, 70, Yeah, In those days, I mean, uh, everything goes or went, and uh, yeah. it's hard to really disentangle, and the idea of individual, individual, individuality and freedom of expression behavior. So it's hard to tease out what might be the harbingers of, of a mental illness from just uh, the vicissitudes of behavior in the, in the counterculture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if intervention had been provided then in a way that was state-of-the-art, my speculation is, is that the prognosis would have been much better. But, you know, history has seen hundreds of thousands of people who haven't benefited from that, who have suffered from it, you know, the point is, or the good, the good news is, is that we have means to turn that around now. They're just not widely available or as available as they should be. But, and here's the controversial part, because of the fact that the illness affects the brain, the brain's the organ that has to analyze information, make decisions, and uh, determines how, what somebody's going to do and how they're going to behave and in this case, is the mental, with mental illness, is the organ that's affected, meaning it might not be functioning uh, optimally. What do you do when somebody is not in, aware, or doesn't agree they have the illness, doesn't want to comply with what the recommended course of treatment is? In the United States, we pride ourselves on, on the ethos of self-determination, personal autonomy, individual freedom. But in the case of people with well, this is like schizophrenia. And your brother, you said your brother is peripatetic. He liked to wander. There's always a personality. Well, maybe he shouldn't have. He should have been living in a more stable, rooted environment uh, with a, a familiar support network. He would not have done that on his own should family members or should society be empowered to, to impose that on someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was certainly my mother would have attempted to impose that, you know, to get him to stay put, to get him to take his medication, to get him to, um, you know, avail of the various kinds kinds of support that were out there, vocational, you know, opportunities and keeping in touch with caseworkers, whatever. But ultimately she didn't have control over him. Well, also families are struggling. How do you exert control? Yeah. But let's say if you went here, so you were living in, let's say, Pennsylvania then, but if you went to the University of Pennsylvania hospital, psychiatry department, you said, I've got a sick son, I need help, and they gave you like a whole, like Fuller Tory surviving schizophrenia manual, you know, the, the old Donald Luck woodchuck manual for or Boy Scout, man, um, you know, here's what you should do, and uh, we have services that can help you do it that could have potentially addressed the problem more effectively. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is welcome to my world. I deal with this uh, every every day. Yeah, well, I think Mike had several psychotic breaks over a period of a few years. Um, and, you know, it's hard to believe that if he had gotten better, more stabilizing treatment early on that the course, I mean, the, the, the course has been, you know, almost as bad as it could be, really. I mean, he did not commit suicide, which 
you know, some people with the illness do. And he didn't commit violence against others. And he didn't commit any violence against anyone else. But in terms of what his life consists of, it's, you know, the, the course has been just about as bad, I think, as it could be. I mean, he's never had a job. He has no relationships, friends. You know, it's really hard to believe that, that some kind of early and stabilizing intervention wouldn't have improved that, you know, to, to whatever degree because um, there really wasn't, it, it, it really couldn't be that much worse um, in, in terms of his level of functioning. That's right. Well, you know, for people that have sustained the effects of the illness in the absence of treatment, that in a sense is sort of uh, water under the bridge, as sad as it may be. The good news is that there are means now to put in place services that you know, uh, spare people from what Mike had to endure. The problem is, is we don't have policies and financing systems in the United States that are making them as available as they should, but um, that's above our pay grade. Let's me say that uh, I want to really thank you for uh, you know, writing this book and for your literary efforts in general, but particularly to, you know, doing it in the context of this uh, family memoir, which addresses something that uh, uh, you know, I'm intensely interested in, which is mental illness and mental health care. So congratulations. that. And thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. So uh, thank you for listening. This has been Shrink Speaking.